ESPN and Anscape contributor Dominique Foxworth has a new podcast every Tuesday and Thursday, bringing his unique perspectives on football, the personalities that surround it, and just about anything else he finds interesting or thinks you might. So check out the Dominique Foxworth Show. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors, anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here, talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. It's it's an astute question. Um, Gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right (laughs) to to agree to this. Hi, my name is Steph Strack, and my current dilemma is I have too much work I want to do and not enough time to do it. Oh, there is no more shared dilemma than this one amongst guests on this pod. It's got to be just successful people feeling like there's never enough time. And it's part of why probably you're successful is you're motivated and ambitious. And I will skip my usual advice, which has to do with schedules and lists and reminders and hoping that clone science improves. I'm going to try a different tack this time. Have you considered an assistant? My friends and family are often trying to encourage me to offload some of my errands and other things to an assistant. Um, And I'm personally such a control freak. I prefer to just do things myself and make sure they're done the way I want. Um, And I just think about the time spent explaining how I want things done or when and where, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, eh, seems better to do it myself. But I do not run a company and I don't have kids. So maybe it's time for an assistant. That's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week's podcast is uh, with a guest who is fighting the good fight. Uh, This is a fight that I decided I wanted to take up after my series of Title IX interviews at the 50th anniversary. Uh, If you go back to June and find them, if you missed them, definitely check them out. You can get introduced to the issues about compliance, transparency, all that stuff. Um, And I am so glad to have discovered that this badass, brilliant woman is taking on Title IX and working with people in power to make sure that the law has teeth. Her name is Steph Strack. She's the founder and CEO of Viz, also known as Voice in Sport, a powerful global digital platform that provides women athletes with access to mentorship, experts, and content. She's also the founder and president of the public nonprofit charity called Voice in Sport Foundation, dedicated to advocating for girls and women in sport through innovative sports uh, science research, education, and advocacy. Uh, She has 20 years of experience at the intersection of sport, lifestyle, and technology with previous stops at Nike and Rag and Bone. An athlete herself, she played college soccer at the University of Montana, and she is now working with the House and Senate on a bill to help strengthen Title IX. So we talked about her career at Nike, the barriers still faced by women and girls in sport, uh, whether it's actually misogyny, a lack of data, something else, or a combo of many things that keeps schools from recognizing the value of women's sports, uh, and also at the end, how the end of row um, adds new challenges to the lives of female athletes. Um, that was an interesting one, too. So enjoy our conversation. That's what she said. <laughs> So funny story, those who are regular listeners to the podcast will remember around the 50th anniversary of Title IX, I did several podcasts about the law, about the celebration of its 50th anniversary, and about looking forward and seeing how well the law is actually being followed and how its uh, intentions are being implemented. And by the end of those series of podcasts, uh, you'll recall that I was a bit distraught. 
about many of the things that I discovered about Title IX and its compliance or lack thereof. And I said, we need a task force. We need to get some people together to change this. And as it turns out, there sort of already is one. And there is someone at the forefront of trying to change this, including a bill that's going to be uh, uh, hopefully put into place that will make some of the changes that many of us have been looking for. And I found her and she's here and she's going to tell us all about it. But before that, we do have to get to how she made her way to becoming uh, a force in, in the world of women's sports and, and Title IX compliance and everything else. And it's a bit uh, it's a bit circuitous. It's not a direct route. So, um, Steph Strack, let's talk about your childhood. Um, obviously, an athlete. Uh, tell me about as a kid. Was it all sports all the time? Oh, yes. I grew up in a, a household of ski racers, so Olympic ski racers. Canadians, part of the crazy Canucks. So before I could really even walk, my father had me on skis and playing soccer and pretty much across every sport possible growing up in Anchorage, Alaska, which was, you know, a pretty remote place back in uh, the early 80s growing up here. And so I had an amazing childhood living in such a, you know, adventurous state with a family that was, you know, all in on sports and knew the importance of sports. So very early on, I started and I continued all the way up to play Division One soccer and um, unfortunately ended because there was no future in women's soccer at the time. There was no professional league. So I dropped out in the middle of my collegiate career. Hmm. So let's let's talk about Alaska. I know you live there again now, so clearly there was a draw to return to the Arctic tundra. But what would you say was were some of the things that you believe are um, part of the core principles of you that are likely the result of being raised in Alaska? Yeah, I think there's definitely this um, adventure-seeking, thrill-seeking component of who I am, not just because I was a ski racer going down the hill, you know, 65 miles an hour, but also because, um, you know, we lived in the extremes, and I, and I loved that. I loved feeling outside of my comfort zone, and I think that that has translated now into how I approach business and thinking about creating innovative business models to change, to drive change. So it definitely instilled inside of me this adventurous spirit, one in which you could tackle anything if you really worked hard. And so that work ethic um, definitely was something I got since I, I grew up here in Alaska. I've never been to Alaska. It's on the list. I certainly haven't been to Anchorage. I think a lot of us who have not been, our perception is very Nanook of the North. Uh, and I'm certain there's a lot more going on there. But it sounds surprising to me when I learn of people who grew up in sort of wilderness, super nature heavy, when they end up diving deep into the corporate world. Um, was it something about your family or your upbringing that you think um, made you someone who might end up on that path? Or was that a departure from what maybe the expectation was as a kid and growing up? Well, you know, my father had his own company, so he was an entrepreneur. Um, and my mom worked, you know, as well, um, worked really hard. And I think the work ethic definitely of my family was ingrained into me from like the very beginning. But I would I would say really I got exposed to the world of business um, and the world of politics, which I'm now sort of in the intersection of both, um, back when I was in high school. And I was recognized as a, as a young leader and I was asked to go to this, <laughs> this is going to sound very dorky, but I was asked to go to the presidential election committee, which was one okay. young, <laughs> one young high school 
homeschooler from across the country was asked to go to Washington, D.C., and we were there for two weeks. We got to meet all the House and Senate members. I met Bill Clinton. This was in the 90s. Um, and I was exposed to what it meant to like take action through politics at a very young age. So yeah. that then, you know, I come all the way back to Alaska and I would say seeing my father and my mom work so hard and then understanding politics and getting exposed so early on like that definitely, you know, created a spark in me. And right. when when things started to happen at my high school and then and then also in my middle school that I felt like were really unjust or, you know, things that were cutting programs, not just sports, but cutting um, educational programs or just quite honestly, having an un unfair um, playing field for some, I really, it evoked in me this like need and desire to take action. So it really started really young. Um, back when I was in middle school, they dropped um, all of sports from middle school in Whoa. Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. And I went home that day to my mom and I said, mom, like, what do I do? Like, this is not fair. Like, not everybody can afford to play you know, club sports in the U.S., right. which is very expensive. So I went home and I was like, this is not fair. What do I do? My mom's like, write a letter, Steph. You're such a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> and that letter turned into me getting in front of the school board and, um, you know, advocating to keep sports in school for all, boys and girls. Wow. And they re they returned, you know, they turned their decision and they actually kept sports in school. At a, no at, way. You know. Yeah. And Across, that's when I was like, like all wow. public schools in Anchorage? All public schools in Anchorage. Whoa. Yes. That's incredible. That's that's using your voice and believing that it has power, especially at a young that's age, right. which often it, often it doesn't, but in that case it did. That's fantastic. So you go on to play college soccer at the University of Montana. Um, also have not, I don't think I've been to Montana, maybe if, maybe a drive-through, maybe a flyby. Um, it seems like it would be a balance of now you're now you're you know in the middle of the U.S. but you're also still surrounded by nature. Um, when you got there, did you think you know you, you knew what you wanted to do after college? No, I mean I definitely went in um, thinking I wanted to be a sports medicine doctor. So I okay. started actually in sports medicine, and it was my organic chemistry class that I realized nope, not gonna <laughs> that, happen. That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so then it was at a time where computer science was the thing. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm definitely going to do this. So then I, my second semester was computer science major. And I spent my entire like, you know, semester in my room trying to get a snowman to wave through code. And I was like, yeah, C++, computers, yeah, it's not for me. And then I finally made my way to the business school. And I'm like, this makes sense. Like, I get it. Like, this is how I can drive change in the world. And I just went all in from there. So cool. So was Nike your first gig post-college or did you work other places before heading to Italy? No, Nike was my first job right out of college. Um, I mean, I was an athlete, so I didn't have a ton of ton of time, as you know. Did some internships at the World Trade Center there in Montana, which really exposed me to um, how do you build businesses internationally. So my my background was an international business degree. And working for the World Trade Center there, I helped small Montana businesses start their businesses in other countries. That then actually led me to Sydney when I went to University of Sydney for a year and a half. And then I ended up graduating early and then getting shipped off to Italy, essentially. So my first job was at <laughs> Nike in Bologna. Oh, I love Bologna. It's beautiful. It's so and the food, of course, is insane. So you you land in Nike in Italy in your early 20s and 
When you first get there, what's your job? Well, my they call it il grasso for a reason. So I did a lot of really good eating at lunchtime. I had to kind of <laughs> really understand like the Italian culture, mm-hmm. which means to take it a bit slower, which was definitely not my style. So I learned a lot um, in that first role. But my first job was an associate merchandiser, which meant I was to take a look at the global line of footwear and apparel and decide what products would come into the country of Italy and at what price and then sell the dream to the sales team. So I became a bit of a product guru at that time um, and I had to do it all in Italian. So I had to get up in front of the sales force and like I had to practice my like I had to write my script, practice my script and then get up there and sell those shoes. Um, It was a really great first job. But yeah, I started at the very, very bottom. And you had already studied Italian, I presume. I did study Italian in college, but I think once okay. you, you know, once you yeah, get living to a there, place, a little different. That's when you yeah. really. <laughs> that's when you really. Okay, well, realize, that makes wow. more sense. Though it wasn't like they hired you and then they were like, "Oh, also, it will all be in Italian." So you better learn that at the same time. Um, so you're sort of an intermediary within the company, presenting to other people within the company who are then in charge of selling the thing that you have advocated to bring there and sell there. Um, you eventually get to vice president and GM of their direct consumer initiative, uh, speed to market called Express Lane. So summarize what that is. I assume that's products that are available on a different timeline and production than the general stuff. Yes, I, I did try to change the title of when I when they asked me to take that job. <laughs> but yes, vice president. Because people are like, like wait, is it fifteen lane. items or less? Or yeah, can exactly. I get, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I was like, can I please change the title? But anyway, um, the mandate from the CEO Mark Parker was to move our product creation process of creating the idea of a product to delivery of a product from eighteen months down to nine or six. So that was my kind of initiative was like, how do you do that? How do you organize Mm. Nike in a way in which we can move faster, understand what the consumers want, and then deliver that product in a more relevant, faster time? So that meant taking the entire supply chain from demand signal to delivery of last mile and reinventing how we will actually go to market. And that means like everything from like, how do you procure materials in a more effective way? Which partners do you actually make the product in? And then how do you think about where you sell it? And then ultimately get a signal back from the consumer and ensure that that whole process is shrunk down to half the time. All I'm thinking about is U.S. Women's National Team soccer jerseys. That's all I'm thinking about because that is the thing from (laughs) Nike that everybody wants faster. And every time they're like, well, this time we get it. There's a high demand and next time they'll be getting to you immediately. And then the next time we're like, it still didn't happen. You still sold out immediately and we didn't get them till the World Cup was over. And this is clearly a rant that's saved up from a different time for a different topic, but there it is. It's exactly (laughs) where my brain went. well, you were very successful there, um, at, at least at one point, uh, the express lane in that part of Nike was uh, up to 20% of overall re- revenue for key geographies. So it became a massive part of their sales, and you had a ton of success there. At what point do you feel like, it's time for me to move on, I need a new challenge, or I want to not live in Italy, or I weigh 8,000 pounds and I need to stop eating <laughs> sausage? What was the, What was the pivot? You know, I had moved from Italy um, back to the United States to Portland, the headquarters, 
Um, and I re immediately got into product creation. So then I was like obsessing the actual creation of the product. Mm, I would fly to fun. China, China, Asia, everywhere in Asia to make the product. And then I would fly back to um, Europe to meet with like Maldini and Ronaldinho, you know, you name it, all of the, the top global football players. Um, and I had this really amazing job. I was like creating an incredible, innovative product. I then went to merchandising um, in emerging markets because I wanted to travel the world. And so I did that. Um, I went to places like Africa, India, Southeast Asia, um, working on merchandising and sales. And eventually, you know, worked my way through general management to the express lane. But during that time, that's that's 14 years at one company. Wow. Um, you know, that doesn't happen very often anymore, I feel no. like. Um, and so definitely along that path, I would say about eight or nine years in, I really had an itch to create my own company. Um, and so I would go on my vacations and I would just be dreaming of ideas. And I think I did that for like seven years. <laughs> and, um, and finally, you know, I started getting some calls about CEO positions and I thought, you know, I have a, a real kind of divide here. I can either go and create my own company um, or I can go lead a company. Um, and, and looking at Nike, I was like, or I could stay at Nike for the next 20 years and be one of those <laughs> lifers, you know? Yeah. You um, get the swoosh tattoo so everybody knows, yeah. <laughs> right, and I had not That's yet not gotten the swoosh tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I did not go there. Um, but you know, I think at the end of the day, I wanted to try a different challenge and I like really have this desire for action. And I, I had the idea, I would say of an initial concept for voice and sport and what I've created now, but I didn't really have it solidified on the how. And so I thought, you know, in the meantime, I'm gonna go be a CEO of a company I really admire, which is Rag and Bone. Um, mm -hmm. Move myself to New York, get a different experience for my kids um, because we'd been in Portland for so long. And so we, we just did it. We went for it, went, moved ourselves out there and got this incredible experience of living in New York City. Um, and I'm so glad that I did that because it also gave me the confidence to then say, ah, I can do this. I can actually create my own company. I think when you're inside of a company for so long, you start having doubts on like, can I do this somewhere else? Yeah. Um, so the rag and bone gave me that opportunity to be like, oh, I can definitely do this. And that's when I was like, I know what I want to do. I've got this idea for Viz. I'm going for it. How long were you at Rag and Bone? I was only there for about five months. And then, oh, wow. then, then um, Megan Rapino. I don't know if you remember this. They won the World Cup. Megan mm -hmm. Rapino refused to go to the White House. And yeah. I literally sat there with my husband and I was like, this is the moment. And if I don't go and do this company now for women's yeah. sports, I don't know when I'll ever do it. And I That's always so had an wild. excuse. Oh, I'll do it this, I'll do it this time. I always had an excuse. And then I finally was just like, I'm going for it. So now you decide you're finally gonna go for it and you you found and start this company, VIS, VIS, Voice and Sport, uh, global digital platform for female athletes. And there's so many different ways to try to attack the dilemmas, the, the barriers that, that women athletes face. Um, how did you focus or know what part of the, the issues you wanted to, to change or have an effect on? Yeah, I knew I wanted to create something specifically for women and have the voice of women be at the center of the company, not be an initiative, not be something that just every five years we get to. So I knew that that was going to be the center and the core of the company. 
Um, and I also had this idea that essentially community and advocacy would be at the center of the company versus like a product versus a physical product. I felt like the industry and brands today were moving towards content and community. And I wanted that to be at the center of voice and sport. So I knew that, but I didn't really know all the problems. So I set out and actually did like a tour across the US and I met with 500 women athletes across every sport, you know, from middle school, high school, up to college, and I just listened. Um, and I think that's one of the best things you can do when you have a great idea and you know who you want to serve is to go and talk to them. And I learned some of the best, you know, consumer focus group tools from being at Nike for so long. And I just went around and I listened to these women and the same themes kept coming up. And the themes were definitely, you know, challenges during their journey, body, body dysmorphia, um, mental health issues, feeling like they don't see women's sports anywhere. And I'm like, okay, well then how do I, you know, use a community and advocacy to address those issues? I started doing research after listening more and more to these girls. And I then found so much research on how girls were dropping out of sport. And here's mm -hmm. why they were dropping out of sport at a faster rate than boys. And that's when I, you know, came up with the solution. And the solution really is this digital community that provides services and content to young girls versus like a physical product. Um, and that really was then my journey into entrepreneurship was to set out to figure out how do I build such a digital community? <laughs> so what is the goal? And how old is Voice and Sport now? Voice and Sport is two, a little, a little okay. over two years little, old. Yeah, a little toddler. <laughs> so, um, so what's we the, launched? I mean, it's yeah, a little yeah. toddler. <laughs> It's still in, it's still growing clearly and it's still going to evolve into its full form. But um, what do you imagine it is as a service? Because I know it's multi-level. There's a membership idea and then there's the free services aspect. When it's in a, a reasonable amount of time, not maybe like 10 years from now, but soonish, how do you imagine it functions? Yeah, so today it is a freemium business model. So we you know, create a large community. We have over 25 countries of members. Um, and these young women, our core consumer is 13 to 23 year olds. So middle school, high school and college athletes. And our goal is to drive the largest digital platform for women who are playing sports. Specifically, they get access to mentorship, which is what we launched first in 2020. So we have 200 plus collegiate and professional athlete mentors. They come on to Viz, we train them. They then, they then offer one-on-one -on -one and group services to young girls in sport. So that's the first service. The second service is mental health and nutrition services. We have 80 of the top experts in sports psychology and nutrition globally, and they offer the girls clinical and non-clinical services in sports psychology and nutrition. Um, and it's really the combination of all three of those things that I believe will help young women stay in sport and have a better experience. Because sometimes you need to have the motivation or see somebody that looks like you, and that's where the mentors come in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're dealing with like true, like disordered eating, that's where the registered dietitians come in. And, and also part of having um, solving some of these problems like disordered eating is attacking it from a couple different angles. It's not just a mental health issue. It's also having wonderful people around you that will support you um, and have authentic and real conversations with you. So the bulk of our services today are, are those two. 
And I would say because young girls don't want to be inside conversations and digital sessions all the time, that's really where we have the the content come in. So our content is really focused on mind, body, and nutrition. And again, everything that is posted on Viz, so we have our own feed, we have our own like different levels of content tiers that you can have access to. And it's all centered around this idea of how do you create educational content in a cool way that right. helps these young girls with all the problems they're facing. So our AD experts also contribute to our content on the Viz platform. This all sounds spectacular. So many of these things are things that you and I probably grew up believing were going to be provided by schools, coaches, parents, friends, um, et cetera. And in a lot of places, particularly underserved areas, they're not going to have dietitians or they're not necessarily going to have even potentially role models who come from the proper perspective when it comes to the value of women and girls in sport versus well, we only have enough money, and so your son or your brother's going to do it because he has potential to play in the NBA. So we're, we're just going to – or or girls shouldn't be in sport because it's not ladylike, right? So if they don't have the right people around them, it can't be provided face-to-face and needs to come in this digital form. How are you getting to the places that might need this to let them know that this is available? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's – you're absolutely right. You're hitting it right on like the, one of the most important things we're doing at Viz. Like the reason why we have it as a freemium model um, is so that we can provide that access to as many young girls as possible, regardless of your socioeconomic status or regardless if you grew up in Anchorage, Alaska like me and had no <laughs> access to pro athletes. So um, what we do is we've created this really cool gifting program where brands can come in. So any brand can come in today and they can sponsor a girl in sport. They can sponsor a girl with a membership, um, which could include mentorship sessions or access to the sports psychologists and nutritionists. And so we've created it almost as a marketplace where all these brands can come in and sponsor girls so that the girls can unlock these resources and maybe not have to pay for them. So um, a great example, you know, is that we know that, yes, young girls are dropping out of sport at two times the rate of boards at age 14, but girls that are black or Latina in urban areas are dropping out even faster. So what we do is we match these brands that come in, let's just say like Whoop is a great example. Whoop's come in and provided um, memberships to our nonprofit partners. And some of our nonprofit partners are in these urban cities like Harlem Lacrosse in New York that are really aiming to bring in young black women into the lacrosse scene. And we match those memberships with those nonprofits. So we're you know consistently trying to, basically creating an ecosystem where we can onboard all of these nonprofits and then the brands can come in and fund memberships for those girls. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? Futuristic. Thinking differently about how we change the future. Ah, futuristic. Good word. Um, it actually arrived in theology in 1856 with a reference to prophecy. Uh, by 1915, it meant uh, avant-garde or ultra-modern. And then by 1921, pertaining to the future or predicted to be in the future. And it's interesting that you mentioned that in terms of wanting to you know, get ahead and, and be futuristic in your thinking. Because I recall Megan Rapino on Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle and uh, Glennon's sister's podcast saying, she's going to go live in the future. She's going to behave and demand things now, even if some of the world isn't ready to treat female athletes equally or respect her value. Um, 
And I simultaneously love that you two both have your eyes on a brighter tomorrow and wanting to be in the future and those ideas. But I also have reservations about believing the future is going to be better uh, and more evolved because uh, it feels like we should be going that way. But there are also some pretty terrifying signs of going backwards. So I hope you and Megan are right. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. The word of the week is... Zhuzh. You know, uh, like, let me add some some earrings and a scarf to this boring work outfit for the bar. Give it a little zhuzh. Or, you know, let me shake up my hair a little for volume, you know? Give it a little zhuzh. Uh, I dare you to try to spell it right now. What letter do you even start with? J Z S. Uh, per the New York Times, it has been spelled J-E-U-J-E-Z-H-O-O-S-H-Z-H-U-Z-H and T-Z-U-J. I am constantly confounded by words that we use commonly. And then if I thought about trying to spell them, I'd have no clue. And zhuzh is one of them. Uh, per the New York Times, its origins are unknown but oft speculated about. Quote, a few have placed their bets on Yiddish. Others swear the term is Romani in origin, derived from the word juzho, meaning clean or neat. And still others insist that it's an expressive formation, like whoosh. The most interesting origin story is also the one with the most historical backing. According to Paul Baker, a linguist at Lancaster University in England, the word can be traced to polari, a secret form of language used mostly by gay men, which flourished in the early 20th century in the UK. He said it likely began as workplace slang among British sailors who, traveling abroad, encountered the lingua franca of mainland Europe, French, and brought it home. Jonathan Green, who's been spending the last 40 years-ish working on a comprehensive online dictionary of slang, cited early usage of the word spelled Z-H-O-O-S-H in a 1977 article from the British newspaper Gay News. Quote, we would zhuzh our rias, hair, powder our eeks, faces, climb into our bona, nice, new drag, clothes, don our bats, shoes, and troll off, cruise, to some bona bijou, nice, small bar. So it's interesting to note that the world's current resurgence of zhuzh can likely be attributed to the bastion of 20th century gay culture, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, on which viewers delighted in Carson Kressley admonishing his hapless new subject to zhuzh up an ensemble by popping a collar or rolling up a sleeve. Quote, it means to tweak it, making it better. Give it some personality, your own personal touch, Mr. Cressley said. The show premiered in 2003, and two years later, the Oxford English Dictionary added the word to its database under the spelling Z-H-O-O-S-H. Now, it hasn't made it into Webster's Dictionary, but I feel like a, a few more seasons of the Queer Eye reboot, and I believe that Jonathan Venice can make it happen. Do it, JVN. Okay, in a sentence. Let me just give these pillows a little zhuzh before the guests arrive. Now let's get back to the interview. You got involved in, in, I think there were brands involved in this as well, in some of those conversations around the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Um, in particular, leading up to it, there was, um, uh, in February of this year, there was a soccer player at Stanford who presented on Capitol Hill with a bunch of advocates from Viz um, talking about the inequalities that women face in sports. And then you connected with uh, a senator's office and and that was how the Fair Play for Women Act of 2022 was sort of um, invented, imagined up. Is that correct? Was it sort of like from your mind and the minds of a couple people on Capitol Hill? 
Yeah, I mean, basically what happened was 18 months ago, I created um, the Viz Advocate Program. And the Viz Advocate Program is a partnership with the Voice and Sport Foundation. Um, and essentially Voice and Sport, the platform, you know, we are the platform where all the girls come to get trained on Title IX. So girls join this program and it's a one-year internship program where they learn their rights. So we actually educate them on Title IX. We then educate them on how to evaluate their school with the Department of Education guidelines. Um, nice. But we make it fun and we make it simple. And then the girls go and actually evaluate their schools. And then they come back and we have community sessions every single month on the Voice and Sport platform where we're there to help the girls figure out how do they drive change locally at their school. So after starting that program 18 months ago and doing these trainings every single month, we then started to see themes. So we started going to Capitol Hill and sharing the stories of all of these young girls. This is high school and college. So we've now been to Capitol Hill six times <laughs> and every single time... Wow. We bring in athletes from the top schools, but also from like a school maybe you've never even heard of, um, high school in Portland, Oregon. Um, and we have these young girls share their stories to House and Senate members. And over time, over that first year of telling stories, we basically worked as an advocacy team and started to write the basics of the bill, the Fair Play for Women Act of 2022. And we came up with three pillars. And those three pillars were very clear after we you know, continuously, again, listened to the girls. And that was a lack of enforcement, a lack of education of Title IX, and a lack of transparency in data. So we then said, you know what, let's start writing a proposal for a bill. So myself and these young girls in high school and college, we wrote the proposal, the outline of the bill, and then we went around and we called every single House mm. and Senate member's office, and we held over 40 plus meetings presenting this proposal. Here's what we can do, you know, like, do you want to join us? Will you sponsor this bill? And we didn't have a name for it. We just said, this is like the work we're trying to do is strengthen Title IX. And then fast forward to last year of 2021, um, Alma Adams' office said yes. They would sponsor on the House side. Then five months later, we got into our, you know, fourth Capitol Hill day with the, some of the Stanford girls. And coming out of that meeting, again, because of the passion and the experiences these young girls were sharing about the inequities they were facing, we then got Senator Murphy to join the bill as a Senate side sponsor. So we then had a House and a Senate member sponsor. And from there, we started working on writing the legislative text. So we're now in like draft number seven of this legislative wow. text, and we're very close to introducing the bill. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, for those who didn't listen to my previous podcast on this, or maybe weren't reading up on a lot of the work that came out around the 50th anniversary of Title IX, um, the law exists, but it isn't well enforced. It is usually reactive instead of proactive. And even when schools are found to not be in compliance over the course of the last 50 years of the law, not a single school has actually had to face any consequences for not being in compliance. There are so many loopholes. There are so many numbers games. You can count the same athlete four times without creating another sport. You can count male practice players as female athletes for the sake of Title IX if they're practicing for the women's team. There were so many disappointing loopholes that we found, and there really wasn't any legal action for those who recognized violations other than to sue their own school. And 
in part, that's because of the gap between the NCAA and Title IX. And I talked about this on previous podcasts, but I would love for you to sort of sum up the relationship between how the NCAA managed to avoid being beholden to Title IX despite benefiting from all of the Title IX bound programs creating revenue. Yes. Oh, I mean, you summarized it really, really well. Essentially, a school is innocent until proven or proven guilty, right? So unless there's a complaint filed with OCR um, or through a lawsuit of a young girl saying, I'm going to sue my school um, or a young boy, right? Because the law protects right. everybody. Absolutely. Um, essentially, they're innocent. They're innocent until proven guilty because there's no mechanisms put into the system to make sure that the law is enforced. Um, so it's really frustrating. And that really goes to like why we've created these three buckets for the bill. But the NCAA, you know, they are not accountable because they are not receiving federal funding. It really comes down to the actual text of the law. Right. It says that essentially no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from, you know, this. Right. But then the mm -hmm. very end, it says and under any education program mm -hmm. or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Well, because the NCAA is not receiving federal financial assistance, they don't have to abide by Title IX. Mm -hmm. But all of the member institutions do. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they are receiving um, federal assistance. So that's so unfortunately, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. So um, obviously part of our bill is to change that and to ensure that any sort of association that is monitoring these schools also must abide by Title IX. So that is part of our bill. That's part of the enforcement mechanism we hope to put into place. But yeah, it's absolutely frustrating. So that's why you see things like March Madness and they can get away with it. Well, they got away with it until the girls started using their voice right. and like showing the, the discrepancies, right? Yeah, and that was one of the most fascinating things. And it started to open up people asking questions across the board about the way things have always been done, the reporting and structure around presenting data for women's sports and collegiate women's sports that perpetuated the idea that it was a money loser. Um, and so there's, there's two tracks sort of like there's the, it doesn't matter whether it makes money or not. This is law and you have to present opportunities for girls and women in sport. And there are stats that we can find that are just horrific on that end where colleges have denied female athletes $972 million and counting in scholarships compared to male counterparts, 972 million. And again, remember in theory, title nine is supposed to offer equal opportunities across sport for women and girls in, in federally funded schools. So they're missing out on opportunities just to begin with and the ability to play with those scholarships. But secondarily, then they're given fewer resources and offered up fewer opportunities because schools are saying they are not money makers. Now, most men's sports are not revenue drivers and the women's sports that are and could be are, are being cut out at the knees and, and I wonder whether you believe it to be misogyny, a lack of info, um, an antiquated understanding of the of the money, because when they did that investigation into March Madness and the women's tournament, they found that it was underappreciated in terms of its value by something like 60 million dollars annually. And if I know one thing, it's that the NCAA likes money. So are they so misogynist that they would prefer to treat women like shit if it means that they have to lose out on that money or are they so dumb 
and so antiquated in their behaviors that they don't even understand how much money they're blowing. Oh, wow, that's a big one to like unpack. <laughs> I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, if you take a step back and you look at who, who are in these leadership positions making these decisions, and it's not a diverse set of leaders at the top making these decisions. So I do really think it comes from a lack of really strong bias that's happening at the top. And that's something that we're really trying to advocate for is like, what does the leadership look like in all of these organizations that are making these decisions, including the NCAA, right? Because they are determining where they're putting their money and they're making the decision not to put it into equally or treat the women equally. And that right there, you know, it, it is unfortunate, but I think one of the biggest problems that we need to tackle is like, who is in the room making these decisions? Um, because there's natural, we all have biases, right? Every single one of us has a bias, but if everybody's sitting around the table making the decisions on some of these um, actions for young women in sport are all primarily white male, um, that's gonna, it's gonna take us a long time to find, to find change, right? So we absolutely need to get to a more diverse set of voices around the table. And then we need to provide, I think, more information. So one of the reasons why the bill has data and transparency as the second pillar is because there absolutely is a lack of information out there. Um, right now, as an example for these young girls, for them to go to try to find who their Title IX coordinator is sometimes takes weeks because there's not a database with all the Title IX coordinators for high schoolers. Um, it's also really hard to understand if your school is in compliance. So where where is this? Where are the numbers? Where are the stats? Well, a lot of these girls have to go in and sit down with their administrators and get the numbers. And some of these things, like you mentioned, athletic scholarships are really easy to to find and to analyze and then to determine if there is really proportional equality going on. Participation is the second. Uh, pillar of compliance. And that's also pretty easy to, to find those numbers and, and do the evaluation. But where the one gets really tricky is equal treatment. And that's the third pillar of compliance when you're trying to evaluate a school. And that's where things like, it's called the laundry list is the technical term. It's about, you know, it's about 11 things that you can evaluate whether or not you are, your young women athletes are being treated equal at their school. And that's where you get to things like visibility, media spend, time of winter times, time of the games actually happening for these young women. Because if they're constantly be, being put in an unequal environment, of course it's going to be harder to bring in revenue. So think about it, a game on a you know Sunday at 10 p.m. <laughs> versus a Friday night game at 7 p.m., you know, of course is gonna have a lot different attendance. So mm -hmm. I think it's really a combination of the three things that you mentioned. Yeah, and I think that pillar I've talked about before is the same one where one of the compliance, the language is something to the effect of, does every girl or woman who wants to do something have that option? And then they can just say, well, yeah, we did a quick survey and uh, there isn't any sport or any opportunity that anyone wanted that doesn't exist. As if they could really, 
ask every student in the population and they would have, you know, an understanding of what was being asked and what could be possible if the law was actually being followed. It's a very easy way to say like, yeah, we did a survey and everyone's real happy. So we're good over here. Yeah. And you you know, the thing that was so frustrating. So you're talking about the participation pillar, right? Yeah. And with yeah. in order to be compliant with the participation pillar, like there's three ways in which you can do that. And, and this is like the most frustrating way is like it's the third way, which is where I always tell the girls, if, if your school is using the third way <laughs> to become to be in compliance mm-hmm. with the participation pillar, then you really need to dig deeper because effectively all they have to do is show that they are accommodating the interests and the abilities of the mm-hmm. underrepresented sex. Yep. Well, how do you do that? What are the qualifications of the, well, most people just default to doing a survey, like you said. Well, how many people yeah. have to be in the survey? There's no rules. There's not like a, there's not like a guideline, if you will, of that. So who knows? So I always ask the girls, keep asking questions, right? And if your school is using that third prong mm-hmm. of, you know, They're are there, is there it. an interest? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're probably full. <laughs> They're probably full of it. One of the things that's always fascinated me about the development and continuing enthusiasm around women's sport is it almost feels so often to be in spite of. And I don't want to take out the extremely hard work for decades and decades by those who have sought to get better television contracts and better sponsorships and all of that. But I do feel like there are these breakthrough moments, whether that's the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, where they actively were in a lawsuit with their own federation and proving over and over how they were underserved and yet still became global sensations, selling out merchandise, selling out stadiums, becoming beloved and influencing girls' participation in soccer. I look at, for instance, uh, collegiate softball. It is the fastest growing and fastest revenue growing sport. It's the third highest revenue driving sport in all of college behind only men's football and basketball. And that's not because all of a sudden everyone was like, hey, let's give softball as much time, money, attention, resources, TV contracts. Of course, part of it is certainly ESPN covering the College World Series and giving it a space on television for people to watch. But I I mean, I think so often... It's in spite of. And so what I wonder is when we have the data that Women's March Madness is worth 60 million a year, when we have the instances of women's sport breaking through in spite of historic underrepresentation across media, no taxpayer dollars going to their stadiums, right? All like nostalgia, the patriarchy, like literally every single thing is actively working against them. And it still is showing that people are interested and love it. Um, Is it a matter of, like you said, just presenting data to the people in charge because they're not moved by subjectivity or by uh, by preaching? It's literally that they need to have numbers in front of them so that they change their minds about the stories they've been told, the narratives they've been given for years about women's sport. I do think I think there's two things. I think we need to do it from like the grassroots up and then kind of from like the policy level. So I'm a big fan of like what we're doing at Voice and Sport, for example, with the Viz Advocate program is like, you know, making sure these young girls have a platform to the people in the room writing policy. So I think it's really about connecting those, you know, and this can go across like anything you want to advocate for. But the, the thought process behind what I'm building is that young girls have so much power. They're the ones living in the experience today. They're more knowledgeable about these Title IX violations than anybody else. So how do we get these young girls in the room with the people making the decisions if 
we are going to have to wait another 20 years to get a more diverse set of leaders making those decisions. <laughs> so I think we need to tackle both sides. But in the interim, let's make sure that these young women have a voice to the people that are making those decisions. And I think that one is presenting data, other is storytelling. There's nothing yeah. more passionate than getting these young women who are living it every single day and using their voice and, tell, and having them sit in front of these people and make decisions and sharing what they're going through. And empathy is one of the most, I think, pro- you know, important aspects of a leader. And I believe that these young women are starting to come to the table and mm-hmm. change the minds of the people that are making the decision. So I think part of it is how do we present the data in a different way? You know, I mean, like think about the March Madness one, right? It was several young women taking photos yeah, was and then Sedona presenting Prince's them on social media. Awful meal. That was it. It was like, how many different <laughs> ways do we have to say this? And then it was just like, well, Sedona Prince showed us one, one, uh, you know, weight and then her meal. And that was what it was. That's right. And so you're presenting data, but you're just doing it in a different way. And that's where I think we need to innovate. And as people who want to drive change in this space, like you, myself, so many amazing women and men out there, think about how you're doing it, right? And just try to fundamentally flip it on its head. That's what I did with the Viz Advocate program. You know, I left a really big company that you think would have just all the power in the world to change this and completely did something different to try to change it. And here we yeah. are, we've written a bill, right? So I think I think that like we have to get creative as um, advocates to think about how we want to really influence the people in power. And then also I want to change the people in power. I think we really oh, need great. to advocate to have more it. diverse leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's I mean, you think about like, you think about, you think about the media spend, right? Well, who, who mm-hmm. are in those big companies making those decisions and at the end of the day, it's amazing to see new young platforms that are being built. Again, that's like grassroots and they're focusing on women and that's awesome. But it, we also need the people in the seats that have yeah. these massive budgets and like all of the TV um, to, to make different decisions. Yeah, I know about that a little bit. Yeah. What, what it's like to talk to them and appeal to them and bring them sponsors and dollars and ideas and have them not interested. Um, before we go, you just call me anytime you need me. Yeah, I will be I, happy to go with you. Oh, I'm gonna, um, <laughs> before we go, I want to ask you quickly about whether Viz is attacking the tentacled impact of, uh, the end of Roe v. Wade, because, um, I even took a couple moments to really think about, what if you're a woman and you're a professional player who's traded into a state that ha- doesn't have protection for your own bodily autonomy? What if you're a collegiate athlete and among the schools you're thinking about attending, some are in states where you don't have control over your own body and your choices? Um, how are you dealing with young women and potentially even the conversations around professional women? Because I almost think, how could you run a league wherein it could be fair play to trade someone without their consent to a place that they are unwilling to play by virtue of that kind of law. Yeah, I mean, oh, you hit you hit something pretty, pretty, um, I don't know what the right word is, because the day after we were on Capitol Hill on June 23rd, the 50th anniversary of Title IX, right? I flew young women from across the country into the Capitol to announce the Fair Play for Women Act. We were on the Capitol presenting in the in the Russell Building um, 
and, you know, really proud of the work and then also just like, you know, inspired by the future of what we could do we together. And we yeah. would have, mm-hmm. we could change the world. Like we could do this, mm-hmm. which I, which I do believe we're doing that. But then the very next morning is when this decision landed and the girls and I went straight to the Supreme Court and we were out there. I was out there from 9 a.m. till about 9 p.m. protesting in front of the Capitol. And I just remember crying. I cried at least like six or seven times, you yeah. know. And so the, the day before we're introducing, we're announcing a bill. And then the next day we're out there fighting for our rights again. And it just mm-hmm. makes you realize you cannot take anything for granted. Nothing is safe. Mm-hmm. No, you can't. And you, and, but you years, can do something. And it doesn't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can do something about it. And that's what I try to um, inspire the young girls to understand is that while you might not like the decision, you can make decisions and choices um, by where you live, right? Or what actions you're going to take next. And so know who you know who your House and Senate members are from your state. Write them a letter. Uh, get, get, make sure that you decide on the school that you want to go and you understand where you're going and what they believe. And... It does. It is really hard, right, when you're in these leagues and you might get traded to a state. So I think the most power you can have is make the decision um, yourself, but not just sit back and say somebody else is going to do it. Because right. I think at the end of the day, what we walked away with was like, wow, like we took that for granted. And now we have another thing right. that we got to go out and fight for. Right. Because we thought it was safe. Yeah. And I do think you know, especially as the WNBA and I believe the NWSL, I mean, expansion is in play. They have to consider those things as they look to potential expansion teams. So um, where are those going to be and what are the rules going to be in the places that they're now asking people to to move and, and begin their careers or continue their careers? Uh, well, I'm glad that we're going to be speaking again um, next month at the ESPNW Summit because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, the task force will be made and put together Voltron style or Marvel style might be a more current reference, but we're going <laughs> to we're going to put some badass women together and get some of this stuff done, because I do think um, it's become quite clear we can't take any of these these things for granted that we maybe grew up expecting. And we certainly also can't believe that just because something is in place, it's being followed and 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 uh, and treated with the care that it should. We've seen that from. Our, our deep dive into the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And of course, we'll now be facing all sorts of new challenges with Roe and everything else. But I'm glad we've got you Absolutely. on our side. I'm glad your considerable talents and skills have left the retail world in order to uh, in order to <laughs> kick ass in this space because we need you. Uh, and thank you so much for giving us some time today. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really excited to see you next month at the summit. And we will be there with some Viz advocates. And I think ultimately our goal is to make sure that we have one chapter, one Viz advocate at every single high school and college around this country. Because I do believe once we get that, once we get that executed, we'll be unstoppable as a collective voice. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is going to be a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain about something. Sometimes I'll share a story that I read that I thought you should check out. Whatever's on my mind. First, quickly, as I mentioned in Word of the Week, Queer Eye Reboot, so good. Very heartwarming. It's up there with Ted Lasso and making it for feel-good programming, which is definitely needed these days. So go check that out every damn episode. Also, more importantly, Steph Strack's recommendations that I asked her for to help out voice and sport one of these three ways. So number one, if you know a young female athlete in high school or college, encourage them to join the Viz Advocate program. 
at voiceinsport.com slash become underscore an underscore advocate. And they can learn about Title IX and drive change at their school through setting up a Viz chapter. Number two, support the Fair Play for Women Act of 2022 when it's introduced in the House and Senate. It's going to strengthen Title IX through three pillars, better enforcement, education, and transparency and reporting. So that'll be introduced in November. Support it. Get behind it. And number three, if you're a brand interested in supporting, go to voiceandsport.com slash title underscore nine. I-X. Awesome stuff from Steph today. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions, dilemmas, or more. Always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Follow it. Rate it. Five stars. Please leave me a nice review. Maybe you'll end up in the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. (laughs) 